Hello, time travelers, and welcome back to Biblical Time Machine. We are a Bible history podcast. Usually, Helen, we spend our time in the ancient, ancient world. Yeah. We're talking first century and then some <laughs> BC stuff. Today, we're moving it up a little bit. When, we, when we're talking about Bible history, we're literally talking about like the history of one of our best-known Bibles, the King James Bible. Do you, when you work in, you know, when you're doing your research and stuff like that, do you, do you have a type, do you have a translation of the Bible that you prefer? Is there sort of like the academic one that everybody Yeah, accepts? and it's not the King James. It's, uh, it's not I, the think, King James I think most academics use the, um, the revised standard version or the new revised okay. standard version nowadays, the sort of gender inclusive one, um, which is all uh, very well, but sometimes it's good to know that, you know, this is a gendered text. So yeah, I would sure. use the RSV actually. Um, and never the King James. But, but then, you know, you have different Bibles for different situations. I mean, you know, mm. the RSV sounds a bit dull if it's read out in a church. The King James, mm. it has that that sort of resonance, the these and the thous. And, you know, it sounds holy, doesn't it? That's it does how sound God holy. talks. <laughs> what do you use? Do you have a favorite? <laughs> um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm most familiar with, like you said, sort of the phrases from the King James Version. Now, when we're talking about vows and things like that in this these new translations do they even like when you have the famous like the ten commandments thou shalt not kill what does it say it is like you shall not you. kill or yeah don't yeah. kill yeah don't Just kill. you <laughs> see that's not I, I will kill if, if you don't call me thou <laughs> i might kill somebody <laughs> i don't take it seriously <laughs> <laughs> well, um, this is a, a fascinating discussion. And if you're coming into this and you're like, King James Bible, like, that's old, that's boring. This is not boring. We have a it's terrific one of our guest. Best. It's re- I really enjoyed yeah, this I, I mean, I don't, want to make, I don't want to make any of the previous episode. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bad, they were all, they've all no, been best. <laughs> they're all the best. But, <laughs> but this, this is, is our really most best. recent best. <laughs> <laughs> our guest is Jeffrey Allen Miller. So, Jeffrey, as we will discuss a few years ago, I think 2015, made this Amazing discovery. I mean, certainly amazing in the world of sort of biblical scholarship and Bible history, where he found, buried in this archive, the earliest draft of the King James Bible. So one of the, you know, the earliest page and the only one, as he explains, that we can identify as coming from, you know, the pen of a particular person, this guy named Sammy Ward. So we will get to his Indiana Jones-like discovery here in a minute, but let me give you his background. So he's an associate professor of English at Montclair State University. That's here in the States in New Jersey. He has a degree from Princeton and Oxford. So he's fancy and uh, even fancier. He won one of those MacArthur genius grants. Do you guys hear about those over in the UK? Or is that just like an American thing? I've never heard about it, but it sounds really cool. Doesn't it? A genius you might have grant. one and wow. you don't even know it because you don't know what it is. <laughs> I don't know. MacArthur Foundation is a big foundation, and they, and they give these grants to people from you know, academia and the arts, and I think it's a whole bunch of money. But So he got one of those, and uh, he's currently working on a book about this. As he warned us, it, he does not know when it is going to be out exactly, but when it does come out, it will be called The King James Bible's Earliest Known Draft, the text, the translator, and the translation that would live forever. So we were very excited to have Jeffrey on. And I should say that this was not our bright idea. We had several people, several listeners email us requesting to know more about sort of the history of, of how these Bibles that we read came about. So I want to shout out Grant Rocco 
Grant is one of our Time Travelers Club members, and we especially appreciate those folks. And also a listener named Andrew Fenwick uh, emailed us with the same suggestion. So thank you, Grant and Andrew. All right. Now, if you've been sitting there wondering who is the next winner of the SBL Study Bible giveaway, <laughs> now's the time to turn up the podcast and listen closely. Um, Helen, do you want to announce our next winner? Yeah, this is very exciting. This is, and an, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name properly, Leslie Llewellyn. Um, so well done to you, Leslie. The book will be on its way. Thank you, Leslie, for subscribing to the Time Travelers Club. If you are wondering what this is all about, go to the link in the episode description and learn how you can also support the podcast. All right, well, let's get to our conversation with Jeffrey Allen Miller about the King James translation of the Bible. Jeffrey Allen Miller, welcome to Biblical Time Machine. Thank you so much. Truly thrilled to be here. <laughs> All right. We're talking King James Bible. Now, this is going to show my my stupidity, my ignorance, but I always thought that the King James Bible was like our first English translation of the Bible. But when I started to read your stuff, I realized, oh boy, I'm not right. So what <laughs> what English Bibles came before this? Well, no, it's funny. I mean, I think the idea that the King James Bible is in some sense maybe the first or the only old English translation of the Bible is something that I feel like a lot of people um, share or an idea that a lot of people have. But um, the Bible in some sense starts being translated, at least parts of it start being translated very early hmm. um, in English in the, you know, um, in the 600s, the 700s, the 800s AD. Oh, wow. We know that at least parts of the Bible are being translated into Old English. Um, then the first complete translation of the Bible uh, into um, English is what is known as the Wycliffeite or the Wycliffe Bible, and that's in the 14th century. Um, there are sort of several different versions of it. Um, so, and then there then there are multiple versions in in the in the 1500s. Uh, that, uh, and even in the early 1600s preceding the King James Bible, uh, that exist as well. So it's, it, the King James Bible is coming on the back of what it regards as a long tradition mm. of translating in the Bible into English. Hmm. So who is this King James then? And, and, and why? I mean, if there's been all of these other ones, why do you need another translation? <laughs> it's a good question. It's a question that actually uh, King James himself was a little bit um, prickly about at the time, <laughs> reportedly. So uh, King James uh, is the king who he was. He was the King James the Sixth of Scotland. Yes, I thought come, that's that's yeah. It's first of the United Crowns, isn't it? That's that's exactly right. So then he becomes King James the First of. England and what will come to be sort of the United and Kingdom Scotland. more broadly. Um, exactly. And Scotland. Um, though so, so people will sometimes still sort of particularly refer to him as King James the Sixth yeah, and yeah. First. Um, but he then, he um, uh, succeeds Elizabeth I. He's Elizabeth I's somewhat kind of distant cousin. Um, and he becomes the king in 1603. And then in 1604, very early in 1604, there's what is called the Hampton Court Conference. There's a there's a meeting of high church and political officials um, to try to hammer out lots of different things. And one of the ideas that gets floated at this meeting is that we should have a new translation or a kind of an updated translation of the Bible into English. Uh, 
James initially seems to respond to this kind of tetchily, um, but ultimately it is decided that that is what should happen. Um, and so it's commissioned in 1604, uh, and they, they seem to begin work on it basically right away. Um, they work on it beginning in 1604. It's, it's done in kind of two main phases. The first phase from around 1604 to 1608. And then the, the second phase from around, we think, from around 1609 to 1611. And then it's first published in 1611. Mm-hmm. So that's when, so it, that, that's kind of when it's happening in the era of King James, so very early on in his reign. So yeah, so okay, so it sounds like it was not, you know, not originally his idea to do this translation. You had this group of people that it was their idea. Did they did they have a particular problem with the existing English translations? Did they want to correct something? Were there kind of religious motivations or what what where, where did that come from? I, I kind of a lo- almost all of the above okay. is really the answer <laughs> to that. Um the the sort of official, so to speak, English Bible at the time that James ascends to the throne is what is known as the Bishop's Bible. And it's been, it was a Bible that was first put together, um, primarily translated by a number of high-ranking English bishops, which is where it gets its kind of unofficial name from, um, in the 1560s. And then there had been some different revisions of it after that. Um, this is the official Bible of the English church. It was widely regarded, though, um, as either not being very good, or at least not being as good as another English Bible that was produced around the same time. It was first published in 1560 in its complete form, known as the Geneva Bible. And this was a Bible that it uh, uh, produced primarily by a number of English Marian exiles in Geneva. And so... um, P- Protestants who had fled England under the reign of Mary I, who had preceded Elizabeth I. James, though, wasn't especially fond of the Geneva Bible, in part because there it was it was a very heavily annotated Bible, so that it came sort of festooned with marginal annotations. <laughs> what what kind of annotations? What do, what do they write? So this is, I mean, though that so their reputation, I mean, I think they're almost kind of like misremembered in sort of modern times. James supposedly didn't like the Geneva Bible because in a couple of cases, certain marginal annotations seem to countenance that if your king was really wicked or like really behaving badly, you were allowed to just rise up and overthrow uh, I can see why um, I wouldn't like that. And so James regarded <laughs> the Geneva Bible's annotations as being kind of fundamentally seditious. Yeah. Now, the reality is the great majority of the Geneva Bible annotations are not like that. It's not like a seditious <laughs> Bible from start to finish. Um, but so that is at least supposedly why James didn't really like the Geneva Bible. So at the Hampton Court Conference, when it gets floated that maybe we should have a new translation of the Bible, there's some scholars who think that actually what they're proposing is just, can we just replace the Bishop's Bible with the Geneva Bible Mm. as our official Bible? But James isn't up for that. Um, But what he does end up countenancing is that, okay, what we'll do is we'll just revise the Bishop's Bible. And we'll produce in that way a kind of new translation of the King James uh, that will come to be known as the King James Bible. But that will then at least improve certain deficiencies or what they're felt to be deficiencies in the Bishop's Bible, but also then avoid certain problems that James and others had with the Geneva Bible. So the idea was in part that the King James Bible then would be sort of a best of both worlds <laughs> situation. And I think as you and maybe we'll talk about this later, as you found in your research 
they kind of preferred like the translators when they got down to it they did a lot of oh we should switch this to what it says in the geneva bible they kind of liked some of those translations better right absolutely so they're they're ordered to revise the bishop's bible that's how the task is presented Mm. to them they're not instructed to produce like an entirely new translation of their own from scratch um so and so they're in fact given unbound copies of a later edition of the bishop's bible that they can then use and like annotate Mm. by hand to aid them in this work but then as they're revising the bishop's bible to produce what will become the king james bible another thing they're doing is that they're looking at lots of other translations of the Bible, both in English, but also into Latin, into other languages, into, they're looking at existing editions of the the Bible in its sort of, you know, quote unquote, original ancient languages of Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, Hmm. Syriac, Latin. Um, So they're kind of comparing all of these things as they go about this process of revising the Bishop's Bible. But as they do it, there are many translators, at least, who seem to retain a a notable partiality to the Geneva Bible. Mm. And so as they're revising the Bishop's Bible, they'll just revise it to make it align with the Geneva Bible. So how do you go about doing this? I mean, in the 17th century, um, I mean, are these biblical scholars or, you know, I mean, who who do you get to do this kind of work? It's a a great question. I mean, in some sense... The idea that you would do it exactly the way the King James Bible proceeded to do it by using these kind of huge teams of translators is something of maybe a novel idea. There's some debate about exactly how novel that is. But a lot of previous translations had tend to um, be done in slightly more kind of individualized Mm. basis. So a single person would translate a whole run of books or different books would be assigned to individual translators. So the King James Bible does it by um, assigning groups of books to (laughs) groups of people, right? It just becomes basically kind of like a a giant, it's like the greatest product of committee work ever. Um, And there, there is clearly some kind of disagreement at the time about exactly who you then would want mm. to be on something like this. What they seem to have done is to primarily go around and select people who they regarded as either great theologians, biblical scholars, or great linguists, or both. Mm. I mean, in some cases, it's both. Um, so they do, you know, they the the Regis professors of Hebrew and Greek at both Oxford and Cambridge are automatically put on one of the committees, or uh, you know, various of the committees. But then there are other people that, to this day, it's a little bit surprising that they're on. They're also very high-ranking bishops and other church officials who get involved in it. Um, but there are some people where it's, you know, they're kind of young, they haven't really made a name for themselves doing much of anything by that point. So it's um, including a man who I'm sure we'll talk about named Samuel Ward, um, who's involved in it. And he's, you know, he's in his early 30s. Uh, He seems to have at least a kind of reputation for being good with Greek and a sort of up and coming theologian, but he's by no sense a sort of a great man or something at the time he's put on. So in some cases, there are about 50 people in total mm. who get assigned this work. In some cases, it's very obvious why they're on it. Oh, you're, you were the Hebrew professor, you're the Regis professor of Hebrew. Of course you're on it. Um, but in other cases, it still remains a little bit of an intriguing mystery about why you got picked and someone else. And then there are definitely some people who aren't picked 
and are feel very aggrieved that they were not picked. <laughs> All right, see, I've I have always heard, and I'm sure this is a rumor. People like, oh, Shakespeare worked on the King James Bible. He was one of the people they hired. And if you like read into you know this verse, you could tell that. <laughs> did, is that is there any truth to that? Is it any way possible? I mean, almost certainly no. Uh, there's no way. Um, it, but I, I do think it's a little bit more of a sort of complicated answer than just saying, yes, like that's just outlandish or something. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, Shakespeare is living in London at the time. This At the time the King James Bible is being produced, Shakespeare is writing, we think, King Lear, Macbeth, mm. The Tempest, some of his greatest works. And Shakespeare is himself at the time very famous. Mm. So while I think it is really unlikely that Shakespeare either would have had the time or the inclination of himself, or that any one of these theologians would ever have thought, you know who we should ask is Shakespeare, <laughs> like Ben Johnson or something. Um, the idea that Shakespeare might have influenced in different ways the King James Bible, to me, that is actually less of an outlandish idea mm. than you might think. But I, I think it there's almost no way that Shakespeare was in any sense involved in some direct way. Though, again, it also should be noted that while there are a certain number of like official translators, and that is something that even at the time people regard as a kind of distinction so that later on you'll find people referring to themselves like as if like sort of reciting their CV. They'll say, I yeah. was a translator. <laughs> and they regard that as a position. But then there are other people who are involved in the project where they'll, you know, a translator will get stuck on an issue and you'll say you know who might know this is my really clever friend at Shakespeare oh, no. right <laughs> not Shakespeare but like uh, you know uh, you know other famous people um that you might then sort of you know other people who regarded as kind of great scholars great theologians at the time that then you might go and get their opinion on and write a letter to and then that would filter back to you some way so I think it's you know there are there are things that are influences that are pouring into the King James Bible outside of just the 50 or so people who are officially translating it. Um, so in that sense, Shakespeare could at some sort of multiple removes be an influence, but no, he's, <laughs> alas, he's not one of the translators. Dang it. Okay. Uh, so I heard that you discovered one of the earliest drafts of the King James Bible. Is this true? It sounds very Indiana Jones. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, no, I mean, I mean, in a sense it's true. Although, you know, I mean, the, the word discovery is always a tricky one because in most cases, they t discoveries in the humanities writ large tend to be things that occur in stages over time. So they don't tend to be quite sort of the sort of Indiana Jones thing. Uh, Come on, um, though, we want you to play it now. We want you to play this up, like by like you're going to be by candlelight in a dusty, you know, annex of a library, there might be a spider that crawls yeah. across the table. Just secret, play it up, please. Secret drawer. No, I mean, honestly, I mean, in some ways, it's it's not that different from that. And I actually do think oh, that just because a discovery occurs in stages over time, that doesn't really doesn't mean it's not a discovery. So, yes, I mean, what I identified is what stands today as the earliest known draft of any part of the King James translation nice. of the Bible. 
And the way that happened was I was doing some research on one of the known translators of the King James Bible, a man named Samuel Ward, um, who had been a student at Cambridge, and he had uh, done, you know, gotten his BA and his MA, and then was pursuing higher degrees in divinity. He was a fellow of Cam- in divinity at the time at Cambridge, and so he gets asked to translate a part of the Bible um, that in the King James Bible is is denoted the Apocrypha, so the one of the apocryphal uh, parts of the Old Testament. Anyways, and so I was assigned, I was, I was asked to write an essay. I'd done a little bit of research on him before. I was asked to write an essay about this man named Samuel Ward, just like what sort of things was he interested in at this time? What was he doing? Because he is one of the people that fall into that category of we don't, it's not really clear why he was asked to be involved with it at all. Um, and so I was, I spent a, a period of years actually doing research on it. And pretty early on, I found a letter that Samuel Ward had written to someone else about one of the parts of the King James Bible that he was translating at the time. And I thought that this was going to be my great discovery. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a whole essay about it. <laughs> uh, and then I went back for another time to this archive in Cambridge where Ward's materials survive. Um, Ward's, also, like uh, candlelight... Dust, right? All these spiders. Things. <laughs> uh, not, not candlelight and not dusty. They're, um, oh, but they it's take a, better so care. Of Ward's manuscripts were all they all they um they all ended up making their. It's a kind of a complicated story, but they all end up making their way back to a college at Cambridge called Sydney Sussex College. It's one of the constituent colleges that make up the University of Cambridge. Um, and there's a wonderful archivist there now named Nicholas Rogers. Um, and if you would like to go and consult any of the manuscripts in their archives, and he takes amazing care of them. Them. But you actually, it's kind of one in, one out basis. You go and you just, it, you're you're on a, a little table that's covered in green felt and you just sit next to him while you Ooh, look I at like these that. things. <laughs> um, and so it, it was it, so it, it was very kind of sort of intimate, um, sort of, you know, dimly lit sort of thing. Uh, you know, uh, you're not in like, you know, some great big research library doing this. Um, and so I, you know, I asked to look at a manuscript on a kind of mopping up trip, just like I kind of wanted to be sure I'd laid my eyes on everything before I published this essay. And I asked to um, call up a manuscript that at the time was known as Samuel Ward, Sydney Sussex MSB, Ward MSB. Um, And it came up in a little like manila envelope. um, And it was in that notebook that turned out Ward had included a draft of what became the King James translation, or at least part of the Bible. Ooh. Oh, wow. Okay, so, yeah. Describe this for us, because I, I saw an image somewhere, and I'm like, this is chicken scratch, and I can't make sense of it. So, <laughs> what did this look like, and what did it kind of tell us about, you know, Ward's process, and maybe other people's process of of this translation work? So, one of the things that should be said about it at the outset is that it doesn't look like what you might guess a King James Bible, a draft of the King James Bible or any Bible um, would look like, especially if you don't really know how the King James Bible was produced. Um, and that's also one of the reasons why I think it it went for so long unidentified and uncatalogued as being what it is it was in the early, in the in the 1980s a really brilliant scholar named Margot Todd was just trying to catalog all of Samuel Ward's 
papers. Um, in, cause initially, even before that, they were like entirely uncatalogued. I guess they just like came up in a box or something. Um, and so she's very quickly trying to sort of sort them out and figure out what they are. And she initially cataloged it as an unknown biblical commentary on an unknown biblical book. Oh. And if you look at it very quickly, that is what it looks like. And the key reason that it looks like almost kind of notes on the Bible rather than a draft of the Bible is that Ward, like all the translators seemingly, very much is taking seriously this idea that he's supposed to be revising the Bishop's Bible mm. rather than producing an entirely new translation of his own from scratch. So the what the draft looks like is he just writes chapter one because he knows what book of the Bible he's translating. He doesn't need to like <laughs> remind himself. So he doesn't specify what he's doing. And he just writes chapter one. And then what he goes, he just on the left-hand side of the page, he goes and quotes every part of the Bishop's Bible that he thinks should be revised. So he'll quote a little snippet from the Bishop's Bible, sometimes a whole verse, but sometimes just like a single word or two mm. words or something. He'll say, you know, chapter one will be centered and he'll just write like verse one um, setting or something like that. Um, and then he'll quote the Greek and then he'll that because in his case he's translating a book that existed at the time only in Greek. There's some debate about whether there was hmm. like a lost Hebrew version of it, but it exists in Greek, and that's what Ward is translating. So he'll quote the Bishop's Bible's rendering of a phrase. He'll then usually quote the Greek, what the actual Greek is as it survives, and then he'll propose a revised English translation of that phrase. So like he set will be the bishop what the Bishop's Bible says, and then he'll quote the Greek, which is stasis in that case, and then he'll propose in English, having set. And so if you look at it quickly, that's all it looks like it's doing. He set bracket, some bit of Greek, and then some extra bit of English. And when I was initially looking at this thing, I was thinking like, it, it was pretty clear to me at some point early on that it wasn't a commentary because he wasn't really commenting on anything. He wasn't sort of saying the sorts of things that you would expect a Protestant theologian like Samuel Ward to be saying about these things for the most part. And so I was trying, I mean, I was thinking like, what, what Bible is he even using? Like, what's he doing? But then the penny ultimately drops when if you look on the right-hand side, the parts of it, what he proposes, and then you go and look at the King James uh, version of the Bible, in many cases, that's what then was done. Not all, not in all cases. He didn't always get to sort of have final say. And so that's one of the things that actually helps you know that it's a draft rather than someone like almost just like making a record of all the changes that mm. they made after the fact. Um, but you can, but in, but there are lots and lots of cases, obviously, where what he proposed did end mm. up being the translation. And so that's what, it, but if you look at it very quickly, it looks something, it's not just like a someone who's, you know, chapter one in the beginning and then just writing the a new translation of the Bible out continuously. They're just revising lots and lots and lots of little pieces of it. Um, it's also the case that Samuel Ward's handwriting was bad. And so uh, it got worse, much worse in life later in life. So thankfully he was doing this when he was still kind of young, like in his early thirties. Um, but his handwriting is still not great. And actually an early cataloger or someone who's trying to make sense of what these manuscripts are see in a hand that looks like it must've been done in the late 1600s or early 1700s scrawled on the back, scarce legible and of very little value, I believe. Oh, um, and so, wow. um, 
Which is obviously like then you come in it like it's, that's it's always a I delight. Have, I have some uh, college papers that have the same thing written on them, but uh, oh. nobody's nobody's collecting those. It's too bad. So do you know exactly. What apocryphal book it is? Yeah. So he. Um, so the 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 draft that we have from Samuel Ward is a draft of the entirety of the apocryphal book known as First Esdras oh, yeah. or Third Ezra, which was the book placed first in the King James Apocrypha, Ooh. and then. Um, he also his draft also concludes it includes interestingly parts of or chapters three and four of the apocryphal book of wisdom, and so we could talk about exactly like why he seems to suddenly be doing part of wisdom. I mean, this, the short answer is that it seems like someone else was maybe assigned that book, and then like all committee work just like didn't do the job, <laughs> and so then other people Even get in brought days. in to kind of <laughs> patch it together. Um, and we actually do think we know. I won't introduce him on this this famous podcast but um we do think we know the person who did fall down on the job uh he's not around i mean come on we we think it's a man named john duport um who basically just decides yeah it's a classic duport move but yeah so um so that does seem to be why ward is also his draft also contains parts of other books but uh, but the primarily the primary thing that his draft concerns is the apocryphal book known as first esdras so do we think then that that sort of people were assigned books and sort of because because you said before it was a committee thing so so d- does he have Esdras and he's he's sort of taking the lead with this he's sort of so did they sort of divvy it up and and sort of so they've got the committee and, and one person says okay I'm going to lead this discussion and this is what I'm suggesting is that what you think so is happening it's, it's a it's a great it's a great question um and it's actually probably one of the most interesting thing that the discovery of Ward's draft yeah revealed because we really had never found it's not just that it's the earliest known draft of the king james bible now it's also the only known draft of the king james bible that exists today definitively in the hand of one of the known translators Mm. we have some later drafts of the king james translation sort of closer to when it's nearing completion in 1611 Um, those drafts are the, a number of the most important versions of those drafts actually just take the form of annotated pages of a bishop's Bible itself. Hmm. And it's possible that those the handwriting in those drafts is also from other translators, but we don't know that. They've never, the hands have never, never been identified. And I think, personally, I think it's more likely that the hand in those later drafts are come from scribes, um, sort of professional kind of copyists in a way, mm-hmm. um, which doesn't make them any less interesting for that. Um, and it doesn't mean that they're in any sense kind of less the translators for that. But by virtue of Ward's being so early and seemingly in the process and also being in his very manifestly in his own handwriting, and he's clearly kind of doing it on the hoof. Um, and you can just sort of see that as it happens. It does tell us certain interesting things that later drafts of the translation had occluded. And one of them is that for centuries, the the assumption about the King James Bible was that because it had been so famously done by way of committee, that they must have worked on it in committees throughout the process Mm -hmm. so that they must have just sat down as a group and hammered out the translation every day as a group. Um, And Ward's draft shows that at least one of the companies manifestly didn't do that. There's at least, they get assigned different sort of rule. All the translators get um, prescribed different rules for that they're supposed to follow in doing this translation. And one of them is that actually what they're supposed to do, even rather than just sitting it all, hammering it out in committee as one, 
every translator is supposed to go away and produce an individual translation of every one of the books that the whole team has been assigned. Mm. And then you're supposed to come back and compare all these individual translations that you did on your own and then like ultimately hammer out some sort of unified whole. It's like the letter it of Aristeas, like, you know, the Septuagint. Right, ex right text, exactly. And they were all the same. <laughs> and they were all the same, right? And there actually is some thought that that's maybe one of the models they have in mind for like how the Septuagint was supposed to have been once. put together. Right, all these 70 translators, they all, it was all verbatim. Yeah. Um, but then there are other kind of like religious projects at the period, sort of, you know, great works of, um, sort of historical chronology that are being done in teams that they're also probably thinking of, like the Magdeburg centuries or certain Catholic works that are sort of similarly sort of team um, team enterprises. Uh, so what it seems like Ward's draft suggests, though, is that they're not doing that either. For a variety of reasons, it seems pretty clearly the case that at least Ward's company does do this thing that they're actively not supposed to do, which is to assign individual books to individual translators. And the reason they weren't supposed to do that was that that is what the Bishop's Bible, and as I said before, other translations had kind of done. And it was thought that that might have been one of the problems with the Bishop's Bible, that if you sort of just assign a given book to one person, there's no real check on if that person is doing a great job or not, or at least there's less of a check. Um, but it, it does seem like in the case of Ward's team, there are six teams of companies or companies of translators. It does seem like in the case of Ward's team, and his team is assigned the Old Testament Apocrypha, at least what Protestants regard as the Old Testament Apocrypha, um, that Ward... Uh, his team does seem to proceed by assigning, okay, you take, you take first Esdras, you take second Esdras, you take Judith, I'll take first Maccabees, and then we'll just get together and then we'll go from there. So that does seem to be what Ward's company is doing. It's not what we, what he's supposed to have been doing. Um, and it does really overturn a certain kind of assumption, a sort of a uniform assumption about that had existed for centuries um, for, about how the translation of the King James Bible had come to be. And I think it helps a lot of, it, help, it helps answer a lot of other further questions that if you assume they're all doing this as a group throughout, can be really difficult to understand. So you can find scholars in the 1700s, the 1800s, the 1900s, who just like cannot understand why the version of the Greek that the translators are using seems to be changing sometimes hmm. in like the middle of a book. Right, yeah. And like, why would you do that if you're all translating it as a group? And you'll see scholars propose like, maybe they like lost the book halfway, <laughs> their version of the Greek halfway through. And the answer is actually the reason why it seems like the underlying Greek text or Hebrew base text of a book is translating sometimes in the middle of a book or between books in the course of the King James Bible is because Possibly, and I think Ward's draft at this point suggests likely, what's happening is that the translator themselves, who at least had initially taken the lead translating parts of that book, are themselves changing in those moments. And that was something that before the, the discovery of Ward's draft, it would have been really hard to figure out. Hmm. Well, okay, so we have this sort of individual work, there's committee work. It's fascinating, like you said, that this this document kind of overturns a lot of assumptions that people have had for centuries for how this thing was done. This is not the last English translation of the uh, of the Bible. There have been 
dozens, if not hundreds since then. So when, when people look back on the King James version, like, did these guys do a good job? Like, is it generally thought of like, you know what, for the time and the place, like they actually kind of nailed it. Or, or do people look back and be like, wow, this is not, this is actually not that great. I would say from the jump, you will find both um, sort of advocates and detractors of the greatness of the King James Bible. Uh, I, I think pretty early on, it is regarded as a great achievement. So it is not one of these things that in its time was kind of unrecognized or considered just mm. fine or whatever. And then later generations heaped all this esteem on it really early on people regard this as a major work um, and start using it in all sorts of ways. So Milton's family Bible um, is John Milton, who wrote Paradise Lost, obviously, and other things, um, is, uh, in my view, the greatest writer of the English language, <laughs> even over <laughs> right, Come on, this is, we're talking about, the, we're not talking about yeah, Milton so, today. Uh, Jeff. But Milton's family Bible of the uh, family Bible is a copy of the King James Bible that's published in 1612. So just one year after oh, wow. the 1611 um, first edition of the King James Bible, which I think that and other things suggest that there's pretty rapid uptake of this mm. thing as a really major achievement. I think when people there, but from the very beginning, and then for centuries, all the centuries following, there have been other people who have regarded them as getting various things wrong. Mm. Um, and then as there, you know, there are always, a, you know, scholarly discovery, other scholarly discoveries to be made, not just about the King James Bible, but about the Bible more broadly. Um, and there, you know, there are certain texts that when the King James translators are doing their work, they regard as non-existent hmm. and that have since been discovered, hmm. for example. Um, and so uh, there are definitely things that I guess on some level, you know, could have been done differently or could be corrected. And other people have been engaged in huge processes of trying to either produce new translations or correct for the faults of the King James Bible um, kind of ever since it first came out. That said, I do think that when people look back on it, it is still generally regarded as the greatest translation ever of the English Bible. Um, and that, or translation of the Bible into English. And that even when you then try to, it's almost like playing whack-a-mole. Sometimes if you try to like fix some problem mm. with the King James Bible, like you kind of wreck it in other ways. It now sort of doesn't sound as good or, you know, some, some phrase which may not be the most fastidiously accurate phrase that it might have been, but it becomes so ingrained in the mm. culture that, to sort of change it starts to feel like an act of almost like cultural vandalism or something. Wow. And you know, some people find that itself a kind of, there's a kind of burden of the King James Bible that mm. you almost kind of, it almost resists. It's become so locked into English, many English speakers' minds as like, that's what the Bible sounds like. Mm. That even to produce a translation that might someone might regard as more accurate and that would in on some objective sense be more accurate will somehow now sound less like the bible yeah. in a weird way <laughs> you need those um, and, so, and those don't you right exactly <laughs> you, you know and so i think that that's 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 the complicated thing about it but i do think it's regarded as a major achievement um at the from the you know immediately basically um and i think for you know to this day it remains you know the most widely read work of english writing in the history of the language. Wow. That's incredible. It, it, 
it certainly is still considered by many a major achievement to this day. And and what effect has it had on, on English language? I mean, are there, well, are there ways in which it's influenced our language? Well, so there are, you know, very, you know famously, there are a lot of phrases that have become sort of permanently lodged in the language uh, that the idiom that are unique to the King James Bible. So how are the mighty fallen to everything? Oh, yeah. There is a season, the world turned upside down. Let us now praise famous men. These are all things that phrases from the Bible that first appear in the King James Bible that we now regard as like phrases just from mm. the Bible, but they come in, the, they enter the language and enter the Bible in the King James Bible. Then there are a whole other series of phrases like skin of the teeth, woe is me, reap the whirlwind that actually exist in prior English translations of the Bible, though not in all prior English translations of the Bible, but you can find, oh, it's like, oh, I think like reap the whirlwind is also in the Geneva Bible, for example, or maybe in the bishop. It's in one of the two, either the bishop's Bible or Geneva Bible. Um, and skin of the teeth is as well, skin of my teeth. But <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> the fact that it's included in the bishop or the King James mm -hmm. Bible is clearly the thing that has lodged it in the language. So there are lots of examples like that where it's just kind of directly influenced the language that people speak to this day, the things you might say in certain uh, on certain occasions. Beyond that, though, I think there are more profound ways in which it's almost as difficult to imagine what English would sound like today and what writing in English would sound like today absent the King James Bible, as it would be to try to imagine what it would sound like absent Shakespeare or something. Um, you know, they're kind of, you know, great writers from Milton or Virginia Woolf or Herman Melville. I mean, kind of almost any great writer in English will have been influenced by the King James translation of the Bible, whether they were religious or not, whether they hated the King James Bible or not, it casts such a massive shadow um, over the language, for better or worse, that it, it it's almost uh, kind of, in, its influence is almost incalculable at that point. Wow. Yeah. Now, <laughs> of course, like a lot of people get tripped up on that language. I mean, you try to read a passage you know, in the King James Bible and your your tongue, you know, all the ifs and commandeths and all the vows the and stuff and like vows. that. <laughs> but like, maybe this is a stupid question. Was that the way that people spoke at the time? Or was that just the way that people wrote at the time? Or can we possibly know the difference? I mean, we can talk about our time machine later, but <laughs> from your <laughs> vantage point outside of the time machine, what do we know about how people were speaking? And was this a reflection of that? It's a, It's a bit of both. I mean, I think there are... In many cases, yes, this is just, some of these things are just like how people talked back then, or at least how an educated person might talk in English. Um, there are other instances where there are things that to our ears sound very formal, but that in the time, in the early modern periods, so the 1500s, 1600s, so the early 1600s would have been this, when the King James Bible was being produced, the effect would have been almost the opposite. So thee and thou sounds very formal to us. Um, but in the time of the King James Bible, it both was the singular form of you. Uh -huh. So you, if you're referring to a group of people, you would say you, but if you're uh -huh. referring to just a single person, you might say thou. And there was also the sense a bit like how in French and in other, some other Romance languages, 
there's a kind of formal you sure. that you might, uh, and there's an informal you. Um, the thou would have been the kind of informal you. So you, a, a king would be you, but a subject would be that. A servant might be thou or something. So when God, for example, early on in the Bible, after Adam and Eve have eaten from the fruit of the forbidden tree of knowledge of good and evil, and God, Adam and Eve then realize they're both naked and they hide. And God, the voice of God appears to them in Eden, and he, he's looking for Adam, seems in particular. And he says, Adam, where art thou? There's actually a way of reading that as almost God being kind of intimate or sort of personal with mm. Adam, like not sort of like sort of speaking to him from on high when he uses the word thou, mm. but there's actually something a little bit more intimate, personal, singular than if he had said, Adam, where are you? And the same thing happens when he asks um, in a moment of real sort of sadness and horror after Cain has murdered Abel in the very next chapter. Uh, and God asks Cain, what hast thou done? It's less formal on some sort of literal grammatical level and otherwise than it can sound to our wow. ears. So sometimes things that sound formal now were less so at the time or even the opposite of formal on some level at the time. Oh, yeah. And so that, I think, can also trip people up. And then there are also different situations, you know, not unlike Shakespeare. It's not like... You know, in Shakespeare's time, which is the same time as the King James Bible, not everyone is just constantly walking around speaking in iambic pentameter. <laughs> there are certain kinds of things that people sort of affects that you might value in writing that maybe would be, you know, less common if you're just like, you know, speaking to your mates at the pub. But that, that I, but I, but I, I don't think it's all just. I think it's wrong to regard the idiom of the King James Bible as if they were straining mm. for some kind of magisterial affect or something. Mm. That has been one of the things kind of strangely for which it's been praised in later centuries. Mm. Is, you know, It is the most magisterial of all the translations. And there's something to that, clearly. Um, but I don't think that that was really the... I don't think it, they were trying to go for that kind of affect like yeah i know we i know none of us ever say things like this but like for this it's god talking so let's really big him up you know i don't i don't think that that's quite how they're sort of proceeding actually huh. see that's that's one of those facts that i'm going to be telling everybody yeah i know, now, I know me too. did you know that <laughs> thou was the informal yeah man that's the fact of the podcast thank you it's mm. it great singular singular and informal right yeah. some people actually some people believe that in the king james bible not to sort of derail the whole thing some people believe that <laughs> That the, that the distinction between thee and thou versus ye and you is always purely being done on the basis of singular versus plural. Mm. So that if it's speaking to more than one person, it's you. And if it's speaking to one person, it's thou. But then there are other people who believe in the King James Bible, like in Shakespeare, definitely. There are situations where you might still say refer to a singular person as you if you were trying to be formal or kind of speaking up the social hierarchy rather than down or across it or sort of on a more intimate level. Um, so yes, yeah, so that's awesome. for future future readers to debate. Oh wow! <laughs> so Jeff, exciting news: we have a functioning time machine. So this is your op your opportunity to to go back to you can go back to the time of the uh, King James Bible if you like, or you could go back or even forwards to another time. It's entirely up to you. <laughs> when and where do you want to go? 
So, you know, given the conversation that we've been having, I suppose the thing I should say is that I would go back to the time that they're producing the King James Bible and I would, I would sit there, you know, and I would ask Samuel Ward, you know, <laughs> why are you on? doing it what this way? What are thou doing? <laughs> right, exactly. Right. If I really wanted to be informal or something, um, you know, but I think the, the real answer is um, I would probably go back to um, a time when my grandfather was still alive. Um, my grandfather was, uh, my dad's father uh, was, uh, he died too young when I was in high school, but he had, he was a World War II veteran. He was in the Battle of the Bulge. But um, in, in the wake of that, he became a Baptist Sunday school teacher. Um, and so my first encounters with the King James Bible were actually through him and then mm -hmm. through my dad, who was also influenced by that upbringing. And so I think it'd be fun to kind of go back uh, and talk to him about the King James Bible and <laughs> let him know what what I ended up finding. And mm. that would have been that would be a really fun thing. I was very close with him. So and I don't mm. think I'd be doing what I did today if not for him so that's the real answer is that i would go back and have a conversation about the king james bible and about my kids and all sorts of oh, other things with that's my grandfather. very nice very <laughs> nice well thank you so much i want to call you by your full name jeffrey allen miller um you guys have to run out and get jeff's book when it comes out when I know that this is a hard question oh to ask somebody. Oh my god! Yes, how long is this podcast? <laughs> right. You know, hope, hopefully, hopefully, um, you know, soonish. It's a little bit sad. So, um, it's a little bit sad that it not it's sad really, but you know, at this point, it took the King James Bible. It took them seven years to produce it. I will now have been working on this book for even longer than seven <laughs> years, which is a bit embarrassing. <laughs> uh, but hopefully, you know, uh, within this decade at least, for sure. Oh, nice. All right. Well, the, the title of that, when it does come out, uh, will be The King James Bible's Earliest Known Draft, The Text, The Translator, and The Translation That Would Live Forever. Thank you so much. Thank you again to our listeners who suggested this topic, and we will see all of you next time on Biblical Time Machine. Bye. Bye. If you've enjoyed this episode, it's really helpful for us if you can rate and review us on your podcast provider. Thanks. Thanks.